So just to recap, I'm running through 2 Timothy, a highlights reel, just some verses that stood out to me as I've been spending a few weeks in 2 Timothy. Now I've moved on. I'm in Mark, so that's good. I'm having a good time with Mark. The Bible's rich, guys. The Bible is rich and full of treasures that are incredibly practical and helpful. It's got the answers we need to live well. Um, I'm in the middle of some deep debate conversation with a good friend of mine about some really important issues, and it's just fascinating to me our different perspective on the Bible. I view the Bible as the distilled wisdom of the ages where God has weighed in and said, this is the truth, and he tends to view, I think, the Bible as, yeah, well, that's what God said then, but now we know better. So it's really interesting. I said, people are the same. Life is the same. No, that's not true, Tim. The situation's changed. We have new technology. We have new medical breakthrough. We, we've, we've changed. We've improved. There, there's new things. So we need new, new truths. And I said, no, dude. Life at its depth is the same now everywhere for everyone as it has always been. If you put us on a different planet with new technology, life will still be exactly what it is here and now. All right? If you fast forward 2,000 years and we're on Mars and Elon Musk's thing worked and we have new technology and spaceships and anti-gravity boots and all sorts of crazy stuff, people will still need salvation, forgiveness, guidance, Holy Spirit, help. God will still be good. Everything I lived and, and died by now in my lifetime, will still be true. Human nature will still be what it is. God's love will still be what it is. Ecclesiastes was right. There's nothing new under the sun. Okay. And because that's true, we don't need a new Bible to be released every three years. I open this book up every day, and it says the same thing it said 2,000 years ago. And it's still advanced. It's like ancient technology. It's like Stargate. You go back and you find something that's been buried 6,000 years and you open it up and it's a super advanced technology. We don't understand how it works, but it works. That's your Bible. It's not behind. When we go back to the Bible, we're not going backwards. We're actually going forwards. Sometimes if you take a wrong path, the only way to go forward is to go back. All right, there's a little mini sermon. All right, fourth passage that I wanted to highlight. Last time we hit, fan into flame the gift that's in you. Then we hit, a God-approved craftsman that has no need to be ashamed because you're surrendered before Jesus and surrendered to the Word, and that's, that's essential. And then, and then we ended with uh, run away and run after. Run away from sin and run after Jesus with people who are doing the same. Now, fourth passage, no quarreling. No quarreling. 2 Timothy 2.14, and then a little chunk further down in 2 Timothy 2. But I'll read 2 Timothy 2.14 first. Remind them of these things and charge them before God... 2 Timothy 2.14, charge them, charge them before God. I love that. In an age of conversation and opinion and moral relativism, where there are no experts, everyone's opinion is equally valid and everyone's feelings matter, right? That's the age we live in. If I say something and you get hurt, I was wrong. I'm at the mercy of everyone else's feelings. He says, charge them. Speak with authority. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, 
but only ruins the hearers. This is the word of the Lord. So quarreling over words, ah, quarreling over words does no good but ruins the listeners. It does no good. What do you mean? Well, why do we get sucked into a quarrel in the first place? Because we think it will do good. What good do you think, do we think when we get sucked into the quarrel, what good do we think it's going to do? Well, we think, well, if we didn't think it was going to do good, we wouldn't get sucked into it. So what is the good we think it's going to do? Change their mind? Somebody? Yeah, exactly. I'm going to show you what I think, and then you're going to say, I bow down before your brilliance and surrender the position. I'm coming. I join you now. N- no. In the midst of a quarrel, you're all hackled up and angry. You're all mad and defensive. That's what makes it a quarrel. If it was just a conversation about differences of opinion, maybe the person could be won over. But in a quarrel, by definition, we're already hot and aggressive. There's an emotional intensity involved, or it wouldn't even be defined as a quarrel. A quarrel over words, which does no good. Okay. We think we're going to convince our opponent. Of what? That what? I'm I'm right. <laughs> Nuh-uh, I'm right. And by I'm right, for most of us, I'm right signals something else. I'm valid. Not just what I think, who I am. Because in life, in life, how many of you have noticed when when a conversation you're having starts to amp you up emotionally at a higher level than usual, usually what's going on beneath the surface is an identity conversation has been touched, triggered. Do you know what I mean by an identity conversation? It's no longer about the issues. It's about what the issues say about who I am. And when we get sucked into... So, so for example, let's say, let's say the neighbor comes over and tells you, that your yard is not up to snuff. How many of you that would instantly trigger an identity conversation? Oh, you think I'm trash. Because there's trash there, you think I'm trash. For most of us, those kinds of things would trigger an identity conversation. How many of you... (laughs) Okay, I'm not going to give more examples, but there's so many examples I could give where... What's usually going on when the conversation rises beyond the level of just differences of opinion where you're like, oh, that's an interesting perspective. I find this fascinating. Say more things. I want to understand what you think. When that's not going on, but you get instantly defensive and hackled up, usually what's being touched is, I'm valid. And he's saying I'm not valid. She's saying I'm not valid. No, I am valid. I'm right and you're wrong. So, a quarrel is not going to be an effective way of convincing them that I'm right and they're wrong. And, there's, and they're also, so they're, they're, they're ineffective. One reason that quarrels are so ineffective is that it, it misunderstands how humans operate. Humans operate like this. My heart decides my connections, and then my head justifies them. Once I'm in love with something and I've made a decision, once I'm committed and connected to a thing, now my head naturally serves to rationally defend that choice. 
even if it's a dumb choice, like my love for my Saturn is irrational. I could give you the laundry list of why that Saturn is not a good, is not a good idea. And you would instantly say, then replace it. Like, I don't want to go further than eight minutes in the summer because it doesn't have air conditioning and it can't be fixed because the problem is so far up in the dash that the man hours to get to the problem make it not, it's worth the, it's the cost, it's more than the price of a new car to fix, which makes no sense. But I love that car. And so here I drive with its little wide-eyed silver, you know, me, me. And there, there he goes. That muffler, and Stan's actually starting to get on board too. It needs a muffler. <laughs> Off here, there he goes. You can hear him. When, when, when Gabe pulls in from work after he borrowed my car, I'm like, that's the Saturn. Needs a muffler. But, but it's not just that. It's once, a, once, once a, a young couple who shouldn't get married cross a certain line. Let's say they have sex. Now they're emotionally bonded. They're going to get married and no logic, no reason, no wisdom is going to be able to reach him because they've crossed a threshold and the souls are bonded. They're not listening to reason anymore. Dude, she's bad for you. Dude, he's bad for you. You don't understand. You don't understand us. It's us against the world, babe. And who knows, maybe it'll work out. I don't know. Sometimes it does. Sometimes that couple grows and changes and gets their heads on straight and, and God does miracles. Most of the time, nope. Most of the time, it's a train wreck that we all saw coming. But the heart, once the heart has made a commitment, what does the head do? The head does what the head always does, justifies the choice. There's a principle of sunk cost, too, that I'd rather waste even more money since I've already wasted that much money because if I don't waste more money, then I'm wasting all the money I wasted up to now. Do, that make, do I need to slow that down? Yeah. The principle of sunk cost. The more I've invested in a thing, the harder it is for me to say, that's all a loss. I need to go this way. It's just psychologically easier to make the financially bad decision of sinking even more cost into the dumb thing. I've spent $7,000 to fix the van. I'll spend $10,000 more so I don't feel like I wasted the seven. Now I've wasted seventeen. dollars Could have just got a new used van. New, quote unquote. Is this, am I making sense? Brains justify heart's choices. So in a quarrel, hearts are hackled up. We're committed to our position. You're not convincing anybody of anything. They are ineffective. Quarrels do no good. Second thing they do is he says they ruin... The listeners. The listeners. Oh, you forgot about the listeners. You didn't even know anybody was listening. Did you? You forgot about the listeners. You didn't know anybody was on Facebook reading the comment thread, but not commenting and deciding Jesus is crap because of these two losers who got sucked into a quarrel over words, over truths, over politics, over doctrine, over opinions, and got emotionally invested because they're both hackled up in an identity crisis because neither of them know who they are, so they think they are what they think. I'm finding myself through being right instead of knowing Jesus who makes me righteous. But now I'm pulled in, I'm sucked in, and I'm defending the truth and, and acting less than love with my words or submitting to somebody else who's acting less than love and keeping going. Man, it's an amazing thing. The other day I'm in, the, in that conversation with a friend of mine, I deliberately let him have the last word because I know my tendency 
to feel good about my, uh, I'm a defender of the truth. If I can convince him, then I'm doing a, then I'm, no, don't, dude, back away, let him have the last word. I have an unhealthy pull into the, of the flesh, not the spirit, to, to defend the Christian truth. Does that make sense? My flesh wants to defend the Christian truth. To the death, to win. I want to win. I want to convince you. I want to show you. I'm, we're smart. We're right. We're valid. Your position is wrong and mis, misinformed and mi, you're misinterpreting scripture. So I get pulled in and the Holy Spirit's like, Tim, let him have the last word. Have no need to win this. Com- you're not gonna, there's not, first off, you're not going to win him over with words. It's not going to happen. Now, if you're gracious and kind, you might benefit those who are open-minded, who are not hackled up with a quarrel mindset, who haven't yet decided, who are lurking and listening. But if you get sucked into quarrelsomeness, now you're harming the bystanders and the lurkers who are listening, who are actually open-minded, who aren't sucked into a who don't have an agenda yet. They really actually want to know. The word that's used here that says ruins is the, is the opposite of the word that in the Bible that means edify, build up, strengthen. So we're actively tearing down and dismantling people who are present but not directly involved in the quarrel. We're dismantling. We're making them weaker. We're driving them from the faith. We're pushing them away. We're damaging them. They're listening. They're not actively participating, but they are participating. And many times, I think, people want nothing to do with Jesus if Jesus is what causes people to act so ugly and view opinions as more important than people. And winning arguments is more important than demonstrating kindness and love. And I'm not talking about compromising truth. We don't compromise truth. But we also don't compromise Jesus, who is the truth, who lived out love. Okay, that raises more questions, and we'll get on with them. Next verse on the same topic, 2 Timothy 2.23 and following, which says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. Okay, so there's... (laughs) When we bought a Jack Russell in Kentucky, we bought it from a dog breeder. It was probably an illegal dog breeder. Do you know what a breeder is? They take two animals in heat, they put them together, and it produces a whole bunch more of them little animals. And then somebody comes and says, oh my goodness, it's adorable. Gets sucked in by the emotion and brings home the yappiest, most annoying breed of dog. Small dogs are the yappiest, most aggressive. <laughs> totally. Jack Russells think it's their job to protect the whole universe, starting with whoever's closest. You take a Jack Russell in the car, it's going to bark at every stoplight, at all the other. I'll kill you. I'll bite your face off. Here we go. Just let me at him, boss. I'm going to kill him. What? I read a story of a guy who came home from work and he found a raccoon and his Jack Russell laying on the ground, panting in exhaustion because they'd been fighting for hours. Nobody would give up. You know why they cut the tails short? Those suckers are bred to be small enough to chase a fox down the hole and they'll do it because they are not scared. 
And then, and then, <laughs> then you're supposed to be able to grab them by the handle, which is the tail, and yank them out. Because they ain't coming out. You got to yank them out. And might, you might yank them out with something attached to the front of their head. Call the fox. Little idiots. Anyway. But we stopped and we bought a Jack Russell from this breeder. A, he says, ignorant and foolish controversies. Just because people want to talk about it doesn't mean we should talk about it. Just because it's a big issue in the news and it has people all hackled up doesn't mean we need to weigh in and give our opinion too. Because there are certain things that the devil loves to present as distractions to get us off mission. And usually it's partial truths, it's important things, but it's not our main thing. And they're ignorant, foolish controversies, hot-button issues. And you get, you, you, then what happens is you get pulled in, and what happens? They breed, not little Jack Russells, but something even worse. I love Jack Russells. I'm, I'm picking on them right now, but they are, I love their attitude, and I love how cute they are. We had to get rid of ours because she was a nightmare, hospitality nightmare. You can't have a dog that hates guests. That makes no sense. People are more important than animals. So if the animals are not serving the good of the people involved, get rid of the animals. So we took her over to a Chinese restaurant and they ate her. Just a joke. That didn't, did, did not happen. That sounded racist as well. I'm sorry. Sorry, Chinese restaurant people. Sorry. We gave her up legally. Oh, she... she she did. She wanted out, so she would, yeah. Not kind to drywall. Okay. Or doors. Foolish, ignorant controversies breed quarrels. They produce tons of different quarrels. So Paul says, don't even engage. Don't do it. They're going to try to suck you in. Don't do it. You're going to want to get sucked in. You're going to have all sorts of spiritual-sounding reasons to get sucked in. Don't do it. Okay. And the Lord's servant, verse 24 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Okay, okay, okay. You should expect this. They're, they're going to make it personal. Patiently enduring evil, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. They're going to make it personal. They're going to do wrong to you. Expect that. Friends, if we don't expect that, we're going to be like, oh my word, I didn't sign up for this. This Christianity thing is it's not worth it. I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. Suffering? Pain? They shouldn't have done that to me. Of course they should not have done that to you. But you should have expected them to do what they shouldn't have done. We're in a war, friend. You're a soldier. Last time I checked, this was not a vacation. We're not in heaven yet, friend. We're in a battle zone with a mission to achieve, and what we should expect is mistreatment and a hostile uh, audience, so to speak. So, don't get sucked in. Don't become quarrelsome. Do defend the truth. Do explain the truth patiently, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents. Oh, my word. Now, we, now we're going to... We're, but we're, we're involved, aren't we? Correcting his opponents... Not quarrelsome, but correcting his opponents with gentleness. So I'm of the opinion that a lot of Christians, if they sat and watched the biblical Jesus behave, just go about one of his days, they would say, 
That's not Christ-like behavior. Because when he was attacked, not only did he defend himself, but he made a fool of his opposition. That's not Christ-like, Jesus. That wasn't very nice. Not only did he defend himself when attacked, but he made fools of his opposition by undermining their false assumptions and unbiblical beliefs and sinful attitudes that had allowed them to get to the place where they were criticizing the one who wrote the book. I'm sorting, I'm trying to sort through some of this because I'm in a, a, a mold, a leadership culture that seems to me to say it's never okay to defend yourself. That when criticized, you should say, thank you so much for that valuable feedback. I'm sorry that I failed you. I'll try to do better. Sometimes that's the right call. Sometimes that's the right phrase. Sometimes that's the right response. If you love me and you're committed to me, and I know this, and you have my heart, and you give me feedback, I'm going to weigh that very carefully. But sometimes... You have a different agenda for my life than God does. And if I listen to you, quote unquote, I will stop listening to the Lord. Amen. And sometimes the correct thing to do is to explain the mission I have, defend the position I have, and then let you go with no pressure. Yeah, but Tim, you're not listening to me. Oh, I definitely listened. But if I don't obey you and you're offended, that reveals you, not me. I'm still trying to sort through this stuff, Eric. You, you, you can see the processing I'm doing for my 14-year history here. I'm trying to say, okay, how do I do it like you do it, though, Jesus? Because some of the advice I've been given sounds like worldly advice and false humility and emasculated leaders who are under the control of the opinion of the, of the flock instead of the guidance of the Lord. Am I making any sense? So he's correcting his opponent. He's not quarrelsome. He's not quarrelsome. He's not counterattacking. He's not hackled up. He's not sucked in. He's not, they attack him, so he attacks them back. No, no, no. He stays kind. He stays patient. He continues to teach the truth. He expects to be sinned against and, and wronged and, they, and expects them to make it personal, but he's not going to take pot shots at them and make it personal. They're going to change the topic from Jesus to him, but he's not going to change the topic from Jesus to anything else. It's going to be the glory and grace of Jesus till death. I started out with this mission. I'm going to end with this mission. You're not going to get me to change the message or the focus of the message. No matter what you do to me and no matter what I'm going through in my personal life, you will not get me to change the topic. It's the beauty of Jesus and the goodness of his grace till I'm gone. You should not be able to tell from my demeanor that they hurt me so bad. Of course they hurt me so bad. In fact, you're probably part of the reason I'm getting put back together if you're in my life. But my public message cannot shift from he died for us to I can't believe how they treated me. If you go online and the people's message who represent Jesus is I can't believe how people are treating me, something's wrong, dude. Something shifted the focus. You got sucked in. All right, let's get back on track here. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Look at this. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. There's way bigger stuff going on than the personal stuff that we feel is going on. Behind the scenes, there are spiritual powers driving the operators in the equation. 
Have you ever been puppeted by the devil? Be honest, you have. You ever been ruled by anxiety? You ever been super motivated to fix because of your anxiety about what would happen if you weren't able to fix? Guys, that's the devil. You've been sucked into it, and so have I. Anxiety creates blame. Blame and an energy that comes from the soul, not the spirit. If you would trust Jesus perfectly, you wouldn't sin in almost any other way. Every sin comes from unbelief, based on the Genesis story and the whole rest of the Bible. Right? That's three years of sermons, but in one sentence. Okay, perhaps God will grant, grant them repentance to, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. A knowledge of the truth, again, is a byproduct of repentance, not the source of the repentance. In other words, the heart dealing with Jesus is first, the mind catches up. The heart puppeted by Satan is first, the mind furnishing it with justifications and doctrines is next. And this is spiritual stuff. This is supernaturally revealed stuff. You think you're going to win them over with an argument when it's actually a heart issue? Arguments matter for those who are hungry, for those who are open, for those who have ears to hear. But if you don't have ears to hear, no argument will win. Okay. Let's talk about the difference between debates and quarrels. How many of you love a good debate? I have learned more from debate than from just about anything else. A debate is about the issues. A debate is about you bring the best evidence, arguments, and logic to the table to support this position. I bring the best arguments and evidence and logic to the table to, present, to, to support this position, and then we'll interact back and forth, and we will see on the merits of the arguments and the evidence who is most convincing. Debate is extremely helpful. Did you know debate was one of Paul's primary tools to make disciples? He would go into the synagogue and he would debate with them from the Bible that Jesus was the Messiah. He would debate. He would go into the Areopagus and he would debate with the philosophers of the time who were non-theists often or they were polytheists often. He would debate the merits of their position, the weaknesses of their position, and he would present an alternative called his position, the faith. It's a valid form of evangelism. The, the, the early church in Acts 15, when they were trying to figure out what to do with young believers, when they were trying to figure out what to do with certain questions, practical questions that demand an answer, People who represented different understandings of the Bible would get together and they would debate. Are you with me so far? Yeah. One of the most fun things that I remember attending was a three and a half hour debate between two Calvinist scholars and two Arminian scholars on the issue of predestination. The word's in your Bible, so you better believe something about it. The question is, what does it mean and how does it work? And I thought, oh, this will be fun. And it was incredibly fun, substantive, helpful. They helped clarify the 
doctrine, but not just the doctrine, the implications about who is God. What kind of God do you believe in? I'm an Arminian, but I have great respect for the Calvinists. That, that night was so much fun. I took some notes. It was good. I still think of it. I still remember back, back to that debate. It's a valuable form of knowing truth. A debate is not a quarrel, though. They were respectful to each other in the debate. They understood, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, we disagree, we respect you. I'm going to see you in heaven when this whole debate's over. You'll agree with me when we get to heaven, was basically the attitude. That's my attitude. To my one friend just the other day, he's like, this is an issue where we can just disagree, and it's a debatable matter. I said, I disagree. It's not a debatable matter. Your position is error. It's almost heresy, but it's definitely error. He goes, I said, it's not debatable. And then my follow-up comment was, the irony is that I said it's not debatable, but we just had a vigorous debate, and we love and respect each other, and we're still friends. Okay. But the difference between a debate and a quarrel is that in a quarrel, you're hackled up, and you're, and you're actually sinning against each other personally. It's not about the issues. It's about the identities and the validity of the people, and now you're... Right? I, I don't know how to write that. and It's an emoji more than a word. By the way, some people might, the Lord might say, you're so quarrelsome, you're not allowed to engage in debate either. It, it, might, it just might be one of them things like, like, bro, you can't handle alcohol, so you need new friends. Like, the Holy Spirit might lead you a certain way. You might be too argumentative to handle debate at all. Like me with my wife back in the day with the anger thing, where the Lord said, when you are criticized, instead of saying, oh my word, how dare you say that to me, you're supposed to say, thank you for your valuable feedback, and here are two examples of why what you have said to me is true. That's what he, that's what he, that's what he led me to. I'm not allowed to defend myself with my wife because I had an anger problem. And that was a hundred times more important than the issues that spurred the anger problem and, st and stirred it up. The issues that stirred it up that got me angry, those were tiny things. I was hurting my wife over tiny things. I was losing my integrity before Jesus over tiny things because they were huge to me. Because I felt so disrespected. Oh, really? Fascinating that a woman who so respects you so much, she's like, who respects me more than my wife? Nobody. But I felt constantly disrespected. All right, so the Lord might lead you to not even be involved in debate if you're quarrelsome. Okay, release from the snare of the devil. There is a spiritual warfare thing happening here. We, are, we want to engage with the truth. We're allowed to defend the integrity of what God is doing if it causes the gospel to suffer. There are times and places where, because where, I've heard, what I've heard my whole life is, leaders should never defend themselves, only the gospel. And I'm like, I'm the messenger of the gospel, and if, if lies are said about my character, then people won't believe what I'm saying about Jesus if they believe the lies about my character. If you think I sinned in, in ways that I haven't, why would you then come to this church and listen to my preaching about Jesus? Leaders should have integrity, right? So there are times when I've decided, okay, actually Jesus did defend himself. But the hope is as we graciously stay kind and explain the truth, the hope is not right then and there in the middle of the conversation, but eventually, usually later, 
the Lord will be able to work on the heart of the person when they've hackled down, when their emotions are, are when they're in a, usually in a different life situation than right now, maybe the Lord will grant them repentance. And then they co- will arrive at a knowledge of the truth. All right, so here's the deal. Um, my wife pushes me to involve myself in online debates. I don't want to. It takes time. It takes energy. It's exhausting. You have to be so careful with your words and phrases. It's like homework. And everyone's intense You know, and twisting your words and oh, so much work. I imagine it's, it's it, it, to me, it's like the verbal equivalent of knitting or making a tapestry. Blech. One needle at a time, one string, one thread at a time. Blech. I'm glad you love to knit. I'll bring you things to fix that I would just throw away. When's the last time anyone in this room darned a sock? Do you even know what the word darn means? Or do you just use it as an expression? Darn it! Yeah, yeah. It means it's to, it's to mend a woven fabric. Yeah. I just toss it. You know what I'm saying? Underwear's got holes. Underwear goes away. Sock has holes. Sock goes away. Pants have holes. Pants go online for $250. Am I right? And then the youth group wears them. Well, the girls wear them. And then the pastor comes to them and says, that's a lot of holes up too high in the thigh. And then I go, should I have said that? Maybe I shouldn't have. My wife pushes me to respond online, even though I don't like it. And the reason she pushes me is that there's a proverb. There's a pro- How many of you have heard this proverb? The first to present his case seems right. How does it end? until another comes forward to question them. It's Proverbs 18, 17. The first to present his case seems right. Well, it sounds good to me. Until the counter-argument, until the cross-examination happens. And then you go, oh, oh, that was a limited, narrow perspective. Actually, there's a more three-dimensional, full perspective. Okay, I see, I see, I see. So my wife says, Tim, you have a valuable perspective. You have a helpful perspective. You actually have theological training, which people don't like, but it gives you a perspective that is helpful that people do like. In other words, nobody respects me because I have a degree on the wall, but people do tend to respect a very well-explained truth. And she says, you're good at explaining truth, so I want you to deal with the inconvenience and frustration of patiently instructing on Facebook. And I go, oh, rarely do I do it when she pulls me into it, I do. It's not cool. It's not fun. And I, and I have to remember, I'm not doing this for the person I'm speaking to. I'm doing this for the lurkers. You know what lurkers are? They're listeners. They're people who read but don't comment. And they don't even necessarily click like or love or anger. It would be interesting to just be the, the agitator. The person who never comments but always clicks the angry icon. Or the sad icon, the crying icon. No matter what Tim says, just comment, just don't comment, just click the emoji that's the crying one. 
pro tips from Eric. Click the laughter one. And the reason that my wife pushes me to, to see, because she's pushing me, stay gracious, stay, stay kind, be merciful, be nice, but engage. Because it's harder to engage and stay kind than to just disengage. Because when I engage, I want to be like, you're stupid and wrong. Just want to yell the word heresy and be done. But that's not Jesus. And that's not helpful. That's not what we're called to. We're called to gently engage and deal with the fact of what's, being, what's yucky in my heart toward this other person that's being revealed through the disagreement. It's easier to love people who agree with me. I wish that it was just effortless because I'm so loving that I'm just like automatically patient because love is patient. So if I'm impatient, something's missing in terms of my love. Right? Right? The best way to become patient is to grow in love. The person you love the most, you have the most grace for, don't you? It's easier to forgive someone you love. Just nod or say, ouch. So what those situations that my wife's like, do this, what they do is they reveal things to me about me I don't like, that I'm still growing in. Easier to quit and walk away and pretend I'm love in the comfort of my own home. But when you go out in public, oh no, now I bump into you, and when I bump into you, I discover me. So what's easy then? What, what's, the, what's the tendency then? Instead of me taking responsibility for what you expose in me, what, what's my natural human tendency? Blame you for what comes out of me. As though it's your fault that when you squeeze the ketchup bottle, ketchup came out. How dare you? You must have put that ketchup in there. Bro, it was in there. The only thing that comes out when you squeeze a container is what's in there. That's not true at all. You put me in a high-pressure environment, I'm going to pop. The fact that you believe that says a lot. Right? The fact that you believe that sin against you necessarily produces sin in you says a lot, because Jesus, they killed him. They couldn't get him to hate him. They killed him. Could not get him to hate them. Father, forgive them. They have no clue what's up. Right? He's love. Love. Love doesn't like, I'm going to try so hard to love today. It's just not love. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to staple so much plastic fruit on this tree, it's going to look amazing. Bro, that's cool. It's going to look great from a distance, but nobody's going to want to eat that. And it can't produce more trees. The seed is in the fruit. The fruit comes from the nature. The nature is dealing all the way down to the core levels beneath the surface of the roots. Jesus said, you got to make the tree good and the fruit will be good. So what I don't like is Carrie's like, get involved in this conversation. And I'm like, oh, bro, it's going to put me right in square contact with some people who I don't like. It's good for us. It's good, it's good for us. All right, okay. Uh, Lawson Stone. In seminary, I had a te- teach. What time is it, by the way? How are we doing? Oh, this is my last story. Okay. We got even less done than I expected. Um, I had a professor in, in seminary named Lawson Stone. He was an Old Testament professor, and he wore cowboy boots and had fine leather goods and had classic old-school six-shooters and lived on a farm. That dude was awesome. He was a big fan of my favorite Western of all time, Tombstone, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp and all that. And it was such good, good times, great oldies, good fun for the kids. Remember, Eric bought the um, director's cut, and we sat down, and we thought we were going to see, like, this is going to be even better than the original. The original was better than the director's cut. Disappointment. 
But Dr. Lawson Stone, Old Testament professor, in his class, he talked about the Old Testament. But there, there was this online thing. This is before social media. And everyone in the seminary was automatically in this local area network just for the seminary students called Table Talk. Table Talk. Named after uh, Martin Luther, the reformer from the 1500s. Uh, he would teach his students Bible, but then when they weren't in class, at meals, they would ask him informal questions. And some of the most helpful things that Luther ever taught people were not taught in class while he's working from the Greek, but actually informally while just hanging out randomly at the meals. Table talk was often the best. And I felt the same way. The students would raise questions. Is it okay to baptize babies or not? Should we not baptize babies? Should we baptize babies? Should we rebaptize people? What's the best translation of the Bible? Just all sorts of practical questions that these people, these seminary students, were asking and usually answering. And Lawson Stone would often weigh in, and he wouldn't weigh in with one paragraph answers. He would weigh in and talk about the church fathers. He would talk about church history. He would talk about ecclesiastical situations. He would talk about Greek and Hebrew things. He would talk about cultural things. And I learned more from his engaging online in debate than I learned from him in his class teaching straight out of the Bible. He taught me so much, but did I ever once comment? I did not comment. It got to the point where I knew that no matter that, that I could just look for Lawson Stone's comments. This is sort of that one of those truths that I've noticed is topics aren't interesting, people are interesting. Don't go to, don't go, when you're at school, don't pick a topic, don't pick a class that the theme and the focus is interesting to you. Pick a teacher who's interesting to you, and every class that teacher teaches will be incredible, period. I don't care if they're like medieval warrior ethos, knights and samurai and blah, 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 and you're like, oh, yeah. It's going to be awesome. And then you get there, and it's this boring old man. I'm saying, what? I paid what for this? I'm out. I found a few teachers that everything they say, everything, every, no matter what topic they're speaking into, their heart has a, has a closeness with Jesus, and their mind has such an inquisitiveness and an ability to explain. It's like, dude, teach calligraphy. I'll take it. I'll actually, actually, I do kind of want to take a calligraphy class. That would be amazing. Lawson Stone taught me so much, and one of the main things he taught me is that even though it's tempting to believe debate does nothing, convinces no one, only harms the hearer, no, 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 that's quarreling that does that. Debate often clarifies the truth, graciously represents not just the truth of Jesus, but the demeanor of Jesus, and paints the way through thorny, confusing, difficult issues with clarity and help. He taught me that. I think of him often when my wife says, you need to respond to this. This is false. That's not how she actually sounds. But in my mind, I'm the one telling the story, so I get to make her voice sound however I want. When she preaches, and since she usually tells me, I will never have that microphone longer than I have to, that just gives me all the power in this relationship, you guys. I can, look at her little skinny arms. Look at her. Actually, she's a stunningly glorious, beautiful woman. Thank you for wearing that dress. I love you in dresses. 
See, the, did you notice how the compliment was harder on her than, the, than the, uh, the, the, the ribbing was? Did you see that? She was comfortable with the ribbing, but not the compliment. Get away from me. Don't look at me. All right, we're way over time. Uh, we want to pray especially for the sick today. Stan and I were talking before service, and he's like, my back hurts, my, my foot hurts, and what I'm feeling in my heart is a lot of us must be physically hurting. Uh, I know why I'm hurting. I was installing air conditioners and all that stuff, and there's just never an easy position to hold something that... I took every one of the air conditioners apart and stopped talking. All right.